This is Marcia Epstein of Talk With Me on lawrencehits.com in Lawrence, Kansas. And I get to start my show by saying hello to people who are listening, whenever you're listening, middle of the day, middle of the night, who knows? And I love that part that you can listen as you have the time. And that's what I do with podcasts. <laughs> and I like them. I like listening. I like listening more than I like watching sometimes. Some special about hearing people's voices as well as the, the conversation. And one of the cool things that, that I think everybody should do is go to readings. What are readings, you say? Go to readings. Go to your local bookstore, other places, universities, wherever it happens to be, and hear people reading from their own works. You know, hear the writer in their own voice. And how cool is that? Because it adds to the experience. It adds to the understanding of, what they're saying. And, you know, there's this lovely opportunity to, to talk afterwards, you know, and, and so often what you find in people's writings are things that are important to you that you didn't know somebody else knew that stuff was important too. And that can be a huge gift. And it's also a huge gift when you tell the writer that how, how meaningful their words are. So today my guest is somebody who will be reading from his work at our local Lawrence, Kansas independent bookseller, Raven Bookstore, that has this lovely, lovely commitment to hosting people who do readings of different kinds of works. It might be poetry, it might be fiction, it might be nonfiction. Sometimes it'll be accompanied by a little bit of music in the background, sometimes slides that, that relate to what the person's reading. Always the opportunity to be close to the writer and and ask questions and you know then you also have this thing that i say do this do this do this buy the book and get it signed you know that's so cool and the thing is is that sometimes you might not think about this but artists writers whatever kind of artists they need to be supported in their work not just by applause but also by buying their books, tipping the tip jar, whatever the kinds of things are, you know, and the, and when you do that as directly as possible, when you can buy it from that person, from that press, from that local bookseller, then there's, there's going to be more benefit to that local stuff and the artists who create. Um, it's a different thing than going to online and purchasing with your credit card or PayPal or whatever you do. Anyway, I love being able to be in the room with people. And so although we're not actually in the room with you, you'll get a glimpse of what it might be like with my guest today, who is a writer and my guest, Casey Pitcher. Welcome, Casey. Oh, thank you, Marcia. It's it's um, really glad to be chatting with you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's always fun for me. I, I my work is so serious because I work with people who are really in dark places sometimes, and there are certainly good things that happen too. But I always count on so the pressure's on, Casey. I always <laughs> count on the radio hour as being a time for conversation that includes a lot of laughter. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> And just because that's what I think about real life is like, man, we have to laugh. It's just important every day. Laugh. That's another thing. Laugh. Buy books and laugh. I don't know. <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about you. Uh, well, I'm originally from uh, Kansas City uh, on the Kansas side. So if you're, if anybody, listeners are from the area, they, they know that matters. Um, so I'm familiar with, I've been to Lawrence many times, so I'm familiar with, with that region. Um, I uh, my master's degree in literature at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, uh, my MFA in creative writing at Wichita State, and then my PhD uh, in creative writing at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So I've kind of been in the area pretty, mu pretty much my whole life. I've never lived anywhere other than the Midwest. Um, that's really important to, it's important to my writing, I think. Um, I'm sort of a, unapologetically Midwestern, so... <laughs> And, I think I think some writers uh, and, and this is I mean from all kind all different regions I think some writers um, maybe Midwesterners f for for various reasons um, maybe want to kind of shun that label for for commercial reasons things like that I, I I would never you know blame anybody for doing that but I'm I'm I'd be happy to be considered a Midwestern writer. So. <laughs> 
Because people may not know the Midwest in the same way that they've grown up knowing about San Francisco and New York City and, you know, some places. Yeah, I think think that, like, when I... um when I teach writing, you know, inevitably students will, they'll, they'll turn in stories that take place in, you know, Los Angeles or New York or, you know, or something like that. And, and, you know, I'll ask them like during workshop, have you ever been there? Have you ever lived there? Why do you set it there? I don't know just where I said it. And, and I think it's because of, of this, this sense that that's, that's where stuff happens. So that's where liter- that, those are the places literature is about. And mm-hmm. I always, I always try to push them to say, you know, I'd be way more interested in that story if you set it in small town, whereversville you're from, because yeah. that, that's fascinating. And I try to push them to, to recognize that, you know, really amazing things, maybe not big things, really, really interesting things happen in the places that they're from. And they, you know, they have yeah. this, this well of material that they, for whatever reason, are afraid to tap into. I think it's because, you know, we're, we're inundated with pop, pop culture images from, you know, everywhere, but the middle part of the country. Uh, and if we do get those from the middle part of the country, they're, they're usually, um, you know, cast, cast it in a pretty familiar light, you know, the flyover or the heartland or, or something like that. That's, that's might be somewhat true, but it's certainly not completely true. Yeah. Cause life is being lived everywhere. And, and also there is beauty everywhere. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the things that, I think people forget or they don't remember to slow down and notice. Yeah, that's that's another thing too that that I think is important especially in places where, you know, the landscape is a little less um dramatic, right? I mean, I, it's not hard. I I maybe maybe if you lived next to mountains, you lived to the Rocky Mountains, you'd eventually take them for granted. But, you know, this, the the landscape here is not so obviously dramatic. Um and I think it it takes someone you know, um, slowing down or really paying attention because there's there it's there. You just have to know where to look, and you and not even know where to look. You just have to open your you eyes. Have to look. Yeah. You have to look. <laughs> yeah. Just slow down and just uh, and look. Yeah. Yeah. And and as you were saying that, I, what I was thinking is that so for maybe young students, um, young writers, new writers who are thinking that they need to have an exotic locale for whatever they're writing about for it to be meaningful. You could mention that, you know, there is this thing that gets talked about so much that is called mindfulness. And you have the opportunity to exercise mindfulness and create wonderful writing about things that you experience through your own senses, as opposed to imagining what someplace else is like. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, absolutely. I think too, you know, when when I mentioned about being sort of unapologetically a Midwestern writer, what I like about the, you know, a lot, a lot of people see the Midwest as this kind of like, even though it's not true, this sort of flat empty, empty slate, kind of blank nothingness area. And, you know, you could see that as a, as a negative, but I tend to think of it more as a positive in the sense that we, we Midwestern writers still get to have a hand in saying what this place is, Mm -hmm. um, through, through our various work. Um, you know, I was saying this the other day to somebody, um, at a reading, they think they were asking about the Midwest. And, and I said that, you know, if we were to talk about Southern literature, we don't have to have a conversation about what that is. We can just, you know, if it's a, if it's a fairly well-read group, we, we can just dive right in and start talking about it. But if we start to talk about Midwestern fiction or Midwestern writing in general, we almost first have to say, well, okay, well, what is it? Is Ohio the Midwest? What about, what about Oklahoma, mm-hmm. North Dakota, you know, the Great Lakes region. So, you know, the, the fact that it's such a broad, expansive area, um, I think that's that's to its advantage. And I think it's to its advantage that we don't have some, you know, I, I, um, you know, the South has this deep history of, you know, um, the Civil War and all the things that came after. The Northeast has, um, you know, the beginnings of the country, the Pilgrims and the Revolutionary War, the West, even though it's not, you know, it, it's it's not real, their manifest destiny and all of those things, uh, you know, westward expansion and all of that. And, you know, the Midwest, we don't have any kind of like cultural, big cultural touchstone that we, that all, all writers and feel like they have to, you know, pay credence to in some way. So I think that's actually, you know, to our benefit. Um, mm-hmm. 
and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to read work that's uh, new Midwestern writers that are trying to, you know, write this place. Yeah. And there's so much, you know, it's, it's like I was thinking about the sort of cultures that create Midwest or just like the cultures that create any place in terms of, for example, at the University of Kansas, there's this special German library um, um, for the study of German, the, one of the Max Cotta libraries. And I remember being in there and there was this map of Kansas showing where German immigrants settled in different places and this huge influence of German immigrants in different parts of the state, which is the focus of that you know, that particular library is about um, Germany. So that made sense that that's what they highlighted. I don't want to imply that those are the only immigrants because obviously that's not true. And I think about my own family that my maternal grandparents were all immigrants from Russia who ended up in Kansas City, you know, in the Midwest. And, yeah. you know, there, there are all kinds of different influences and, and they're fascinating to see how those play out in, you know, where people live and what kind of art and all kinds of things. It's, it's really, there's a lot everywhere. I guess that's what we need to remember. It's a lot to value, to appreciate, to learn from. Wherever yeah. We are. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think too, I mentioned earlier about how, how, you know, the Midwest doesn't have generally doesn't have any, you know, large scale sort of cultural touchstone, but there's, there's so many small ones. I mean, Lawrence with, you know, the, um, Quantrill's Raid and all of those things. I mean, you had, I think you had, I don't remember the name of the town. It was in Kansas and Oklahoma, both the Exodusters, so the African-Americans who settled the plains and had, had, you know, all black cities, little all, all black towns. And I mean, it was all this, this great thing. I think in Wichita, Wichita is the, is the um, was the site of the very first sit-in, the civil rights era sit-in, happened in Wichita of all places. So there's all this really amazing small bits of history. Um, and um, I, th I think it's, it's, you know, that's to our benefit too, that it's, mm -hmm. that we're, that it's historically speaking, we're, we're still developing, we're still new, we're still, we're still, you know, like I said before, we can, we can write this place. We, ha we can have some say in what, you know, if, if Midwestern fiction as a, you know, become or miss Midwestern writing um, becomes strong as a region, it's because we, the writers have some say in that. And that's, 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 I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, and it parallels something that I was listening to on NPR this morning about, and I apologize because I don't remember the name. I just caught a piece of this. It was about a, an African-American artist, and, and there, he was talking about, in the interviewer was talking about how this person's paintings are full of African-American people, and that this person painted with the goal of creating masterpieces that would be in museums and to fill more museums with more works of art that are about African-American people and their lives as opposed to what is more common with, with fair complected people in so many paintings that are known. And that, that reminder of, of bringing different cultures and, and you're talking about you know Midwest real life to to people's awareness and the beauty of that and the importance of that you know and yeah. as we're talking about this I, I just have to say I would love to hear you share from your reading from your writing sure. um, and, and let's give people a taste of what you're talking about yeah um this uh, I'm going to read a very I'll, I'll read a very short piece here. It's it's the opening story in the collection, um, and it's it's you know barely a page. So um, <clears throat> I'd be happy to read that. It's called Outing. Once years ago, I spent the day with a woman in a small town outside Kansas City. We hadn't been dating long and didn't know each other well, but we just had a scare and somehow thought this outing would be a kind of litmus test for our relationship or whatever it was we were doing. At a kitschy winery, we sampled every wine they had and, feeling guilty, bought a bottle called Twister and took it with us to a regionally famous writer's house we learned about from a brochure. Neither of us had ever read, had read any of the author's work, so much of the self-guided tour of the shabby Victorian was lost on us. We spent an hour beneath a large sycamore behind the house, drinking the sweet wine and joking about a photo of the author reading in a bat, eating the bathtub, his knees, head, and smooth belly poking from the water like that famous photo of the Loch Ness Monster. As we were leaving, 
We came to a four-way stop in a neighborhood not far from the author's house. Just as I was about to accelerate, a young boy, no more than two years old, naked from the waist down, wandered out into the street in front of us. I looked at the woman I was with, and her face, rosy from the wine, went slack and her mouth hung open. There was no one in any of the yards on the corners, no one walking on the sidewalk, and no one in any of the cars on the street. We were alone together. The boy toddled past the front of the car, smiling the whole time. When he made it across, the woman and I looked at each other again. She reached for my hand resting on the console and squeezed it. I gunned it through the intersection, tires chirping on the pavement. In the rearview mirror, the boy stopped and turned in our direction. I watched as he got smaller and smaller until I could no longer see him. Later, still gripping my hand, the woman cried as I drove. I wonder sometimes, when it's late at night and she's in a lover's bed, does she tell this story the same as I do? That's lovely. Oh, thank you. So much that it, you know, that it brings up with it, the imagery and, and the thoughts about this child and the possibility that you could have not seen the child and hit the child and just all this, you know, all these different ways that my brain goes with that story. And I love yeah, that but- comment about, you know, that her, her version and your version might be very different. Yeah, that, that was, um, I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted the story to be first was that last line that, mm-hmm. you know, we are all telling stories, you know, about ourselves and this narrator is telling every, you know, he's, he's, if, if we can, if, if we can believe he's being honest with us, he's telling us the truth, but he doesn't, his truth, right. but she might tell a different truth right. and both of them, it's, it's true. I mean, it's both of their truths. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I liked that. I liked that moment uh, to sort of lead the collection off with this sense of, you know, storytelling. Okay. Um, and you just mentioned it as the collection. So will you tell us what collection this is? Um, yes, it's uh, uh, the book is called The Spoils, um, and uh, it's a story collection. Um, all of the stories are <clears throat> based in the Midwest, uh, mostly in and around Kansas. A few of them. Um, a few of them don't have any stated locations, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking of the Midwest. Um, yeah. And I think that they, they deal, um, mostly with, you know, uh, like the, uh, when we were putting the book together and thinking about how to describe it, uh, one of the things, uh, it's actually a friend of mine, uh, you know, helped, helped with this. And he said, it's about men, uh, drowning under the weight of their masculinity. And, you know, I, I think that in, in one sense, you know, the world probably doesn't need another book about men from a man, but, um, I hope, <laughs> I hope that, uh, I hope that this, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I, I'm interested and fascinated by the ways in which we sort of perform at being men, um, Perform. I mean, gender in general, we perform it. But you know, I think I'm I'm kind of focusing on the ways in which you know we perform as men and how the decisions we make are oftentimes influenced by you know what we think uh-huh. a man should do or what a, what a man is, for example. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm interested in that. Um, I think that I'm also interested. I think the stories um, generally are concerned with the times in you know, characters or characters when they face uh, decisions and sometimes those decisions don't, don't present right answers. Like what happens when you're faced with something that, that, you know, neither, neither path is, is the right one. Uh, And then, and then oftentimes too, when we make a decision, sometimes we think in our best interest and then we have to live with that. And Mm -hmm. it might not be, might not have been in retrospect, the best decision, but we're stuck Mm -hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the, the, there's a story in, in the book called the spoils, but one of the reasons we decided on that being the title was that it, you know, there's this sense of, um, you know, the, the old saying like to the, to the victor go the spoils. Mm-hmm. And there's this sense that, that, you know, in that sense, it's good, but what happens if you get what you want and you don't want it anymore? Yeah. Um, so, and also spoils being, you know, having the more negative connotations by something going bad. So, mm-hmm. um, 
so yeah, I, I'm I'm really happy with it. The 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 publisher Switchgrass Books um, is out of Northern Illinois University Press, um, and they've done they they were uh, amazing to work with, and I'm really really happy with the way the book. I'm I'm really happy with the way everything came together, but I'm also this maybe isn't as important to some people, but uh, I, I'm I really like the way the book looks as a physical object. I'm really happy with it, um, and I think sometimes, you know, when you're when you're working with a small press, you're never sure how it's going to turn out, but I've, I. Uh, it's you know I couldn't have asked for, for something better. So, mm-hmm. and I'm a huge fan of books in print. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it's interesting to me. It's a different experience holding the book and looking at the page than it is looking at something on a backlit screen. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I recognize that uh, that that's the direction things are going, and you know, this book's available as an ebook too, and I'm I'm happy. People, I mean, if, if that's the way people prefer to read, right. then by all means, right. you know, buy it and read it that way. But, um, but yeah, there's something about the physical book that, you know, I think I, I don't think you're going to talk to too many writers who, who don't feel the same way that the physical book is important, mm-hmm. uh, even, even if they might do their reading through, you know, a Kindle or a, or a Nook or some other, some mm-hmm. other e-reader. But I, I think there's just something about it. Uh, it feels you know, permanent, um, you know, it's going to go on the shelf. And one of the things about, you know, finally the long process of, of getting the book published and, and all of that is just a sense that, you know, even if, even if I never write another one, I can say I did it. Like it's going on the shelf. It's there. It's, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a sense of permanence to it, uh, at least as much as, you know, paper and glue can be permanent. Ink can be permanent. Yeah. And, and I also, for me, I see it as, also something that can be shared in a different way. You know, when Mm -hmm. I have read a book that's really touched me, I keep that book and I recommend that book, but I also love physically sharing it with somebody saying, you know, I'd be happy to loan this to you. I really want it back, but you know, this is, this is a book that is really special to me in these ways. And I think you will enjoy it too, you know, and better when, you know, I can gift somebody with, with a book, you know, but, but there's something about, as you use the word permanence, there's something about that, that, that it's a tangible thing that we can both look at together in a different way than looking at words just on a backlit screen. And I don't begrudge people who read on screens and I get the ease of that. Um, you know, mostly read, <laughs> yes, read. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, it's hard to fault somebody in this day and age. If they're reading, then then they're reading. Like it's hard to yeah. fault their, the way they go about it, the the, the medium. But but know that, yeah, yeah, you mentioned like giving a book as a gift. It, you know, handing a physical book over is different yeah. than saying, Hey, I got you this gift card to buy a digital book. Like, I mean, it's the gift yeah. is still meaningful, but, but yeah, I mean, you can write in a book, yeah. you know, uh, you can, you can, you know, the author could inscribe it. You could inscribe something in it, you know, yeah. to give to the person. I don't know. Like I, I just, yeah, I, I don't think you're going to find too many writers who, who aren't going to cling to, you know, they'll, for, for marketing and commercial purposes, they're, they're happy. They're happy with ebooks, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, there's something about the, the physical copy. Yeah. See in your book in a store. I know from other people, that's a really cool thing. Oh, that's my book. Yeah. <laughs> On um, a library had, shelf. Those like, yeah, those I, yeah. I had a couple readings uh, last week. I, I have a reading in Lincoln here where I live now, Lincoln, Nebraska, to, sort of a kind of a book release. The book's been out for a couple of weeks, but a book release reading here tomorrow. Uh, but I had a couple of readings in Iowa uh, last week. I read at the University of Dubuque, and then I read in this great little store in Decorah, Iowa called the uh, Dragonfly Books. Um, and I highly recommend people, if you're up in northeastern Iowa, um, you, should, you should check it out. Um, but it was it was neat to sort of see, especially at Dragonfly, to sort of see the books there and the little flyer for the reading and, and just, you know, it it, it gave it a gave it a sense of reality that I hadn't yet felt exactly. So mm-hmm. it's great. Yeah. And I want to invite you to say some things about writing about men. I mean, you, you touched on that, 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 that may be something that's um, in some ways almost not as valued in certain times as, as other perspectives, you know, that, that dilemma about in this, United States of America, white males are in general more privileged and more dominant in terms sure. of visibility. 
and and we're at a time where so there's that layer and there's there's the layer of of gender and different views of gender um, different awarenesses than say 30 years ago i'm just throwing that out i don't know what point sure. but that that notion of people um, experiencing identifying knowing themselves as not only male or only female um and so so gender is complicated <laughs> oh yes it is definitely yeah. um and yeah i think that i mean you, you're right about you know obviously as a white male i'm i'm you know privileged in ways that i'm i don't even recognize I and mean, that, that that speaks to how privileged i am to, to not even notice the privilege um but we're also at this time where like you said sort of with the current political climate we have a group of mostly white men feeling disenfranchised, which, which I think for a lot of people, maybe on, you know, my end of the political spectrum might see that as almost unfathomable, like hard to recognize, you know, that there's this feeling. Um, so, so you're right. I mean, so, so gender is complicated and then, and then, um, or understanding gender can be complicated. And I think that, you know, in our current climate, masculinity, a lot of, you know, you hear, you hear people think, saying things like masculinity is under attack and all of that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's 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 a challenge to to write about. I, I guess I don't think about those things when I'm writing characters. I think if I did, I probably wouldn't write very many characters, um, <laughs> only because that's it's really difficult. I try to write characters that are recognizable or or are recognizable to me, mm-hmm. um, and who are maybe you know experiencing things that may, maybe through a political lens someone might be able to read something into it but that w- that was was never an intent of mine to say okay I'm going to write a you know a character feeling disenfranchised by whatever I don't I I don't write that way and most of these in fact all of these stories were completed you know um like the, I think the newest story in here is probably 2 years old so mm-hmm. They would have all been completed before sort of this, even though this, even though the, the current sort of political climate is not, it's been building, it's not, it didn't just happen, but these were all completed before that. But no, I, I mean, like I said, I try to write real people and, um, you know, I, the, the other, the other sort of issue of masculinity that probably surfaces even more is for their father son relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, my wife and I, our, our son was born uh, he's six now, so he this book kind of grew with him. And uh, I mean, I think if someone, if so, even if someone didn't know that, if they read it, they would probably guess that I had a son, just because there there are sons throughout. Um, my somebody, uh, my MFA thesis director, uh, when he read it, when he read the book, he said uh, that it's the book's haunted. The stories are haunted by children. And it was this really, I was like, oh man, it's so great. I never would have thought that, but. There's this sense that that you know if, if we if you have kids you recognize how how your kids haunt you right they're on your mind all the time the decisions that you make the way that you perceive yourself um, you know and how they how you think they might perceive you all these things are yeah. are there and even and even the char- there's a few characters in here a few stories that where the characters don't have children and they're kind of haunted by children too haunted by the children they don't have mm-hmm. um, so when I when I had when we had our son. You know, this, I, I don't know why this struck me as such a revelation at the time, but I had this feeling of, of kind of profound feeling of being both a son and a father. Um, and, and, you know, this, this sense that as a son, you know, you're always trying to make, and I would imagine this is not just, not just for, for men, you know, as a child, you're trying to make your parents proud. So I was trying, you know, in the sense mm-hmm. of being a son, trying to make my father proud. And now as a father, I'm like, okay, well, now I want someone to be proud of me mm-hmm. and it seems the same, but I don't, I don't think it is. I mean, I mean, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, the decisions that I make now are someone's watching. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a really, that was a really profound thing for me. Um, mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe it shouldn't have been, maybe I should have already known that going in. I'm not sure. But, uh, I think that was something that was on my mind, um, consciously and subconsciously as I wrote the stories, um, yeah. th- this idea that, that, um, you know, in the in the title story, uh, it's called like I said, it's called the Spoils. Um, it's about um, you know how the Harlem Globetrotters they play a team called the Washington Generals every time, okay. and that team loses every night. And I thought, what it would what what might that be like to be one of those players mm-hmm. to 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 be 
a Washington Generals player and have to go out every night and like get made fun of, you know, and be teased and and laughed at and lose every night. And then I thought, well, what would it be like if you had a son? That or, you know, me as a man, what would that be like if my son was watching? How would I explain that to him? Uh, yeah. And um, in, in the story, not, I don't want to give too much away. People maybe a little teaser or get her to buy it, but um, the. Uh, uh, in the story, this this one player decides to stop playing along. He start he, he plays he he plays hard. He doesn't he doesn't play along with the script. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know you know I was wondering what that would be like to wrestle with that to to have your job be to lose, mm-hmm. and then to try to say well how, how would you explain that to your son when you're trying to teach your child to you know to play hard and to you know and and you know may the best man win and all all the sort of lessons that we try to teach children and then for your job to be to not do any of that. Yeah. Um, sort of fascinated by that. And and I think that those kinds of issues sort of permeate in different in different forms. They permeate the book. So Yeah. That's fascinating. And and you you kind of mentioned that throwing out uh, talking about that story, um, giving that to our audience is a little bit of a teaser. <laughs> might make well you want to make sure you get a copy of the spoils. And I'm gonna extend this even more by saying, and we're gonna take a break. So you have to wait to hear more. <laughs> we're gonna hear from a couple of the Lawrence Kansas businesses that sponsor LawrenceHits.com. And then we'll be right back with more talk with me and today with my guest, Casey Pitcher. Thanks. Welcome back. This is Marcia Epstein on Talk With Me, and I'm talking with Casey Pitcher, a writer who's based in Nebraska, talking about the Midwest, talking about this new story collection, The Spoils, you know, and you were talking about that story, that particular story, and father-son relationships, and and how maybe you should have known, you know, what some of that father stuff would be like before. I'm of the mind that we don't really know much of anything until we've experienced it, which may sound kind of weird, but I, I think I think that we really, you know, we have some general ideas, but because everything we experience is seen, experienced through the filters of things we've already experienced, that, that we just can't know. You can't, you know, you, you hopefully have an idea before you become a parent that you really do want to become a parent, you know, because of some things that, that your ideas about what that family life will be like, you know, hopefully you, you have some awareness of what it might be like, but you don't know for sure. And, and I know in terms of parenting, speaking as a parent, I had no idea of the kind of deep connection I would feel to my children who happen to both be sons. I didn't know that in advance. And, and, and my husband, who's their father, was similarly surprised. <laughs> it's like, wow, you took a big risk to have a kid with me then, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's a, I mean, you know, it's it was sort of uh, surprising to me that how you know the cliches proved to be true. That whole sense of you know falling in love in a matter of you know when 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 our son was born, it was it's instant, and it's this you know it, you know if it takes if it normally takes someone you know if somebody falls in love over time, this happens instantly, and it's overwhelming, and and yeah, um, yeah it, it's it's a um, you know, you mentioned too about about how our experiences are, are filtered. There's also this sense too that that you know increasingly all of our experiences come vicariously through you know TV or other media, um, and I think that sometimes that that changes the way we interpret a real experience. That it you know because we have these preconceived notions about it, and that can either we can either be surprised or disappointed based upon our actual experience. You know, when we compare that to what we thought was going to happen. Yeah. Um, so that, that's kind of interesting, and, and I don't think though, um, I don't think parenting can be replicated. <laughs> like actually, what that really feels like, I don't think that one. That's not one that I don't think can be replicated. Mm-hmm. Um, at least not yet. Yeah. Well, and I think it's. I think there's also a. I remember having a conversation with with a cousin after his daughter was born, and and he was pretty honest about it. He said, you know. I am certain that I love my daughter 
way more than our parents loved us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that was, I think, a reflection on we grew up at a time where we believed fully that we had the choice about whether or not to become parents. And to a certain extent, you know, we can't control everything, but to a certain extent, the choice of when we would become parents in our lives, you know, that mm-hmm. that if, if you go back to, uh, you know, when America was great or whatever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That uh, you know, you you were, my mom. My mom married young and had her first son pretty soon after she was married. You know, and that was kind of the expectation. And and there wasn't. It wasn't like I'm ready to have a baby. It's just like oh, that happened. Um, yeah. And so there you go. You know, and and so I I do think there's there's something wonderful about wanting to be a parent, whatever, through whatever ways you become a parent and, and having that opportunity. And as I say that, I'm very conscious of families I know who were not able to biologically have, have children. And there's a certain kind of loss there, even though, yes, there are children to be brought into our families, adopted, fostered, you know, all those different things. But, but I, I get that, that it's important to people to, to become a family in the way that is important to them. Yeah. Anyway, you know, it's, but, but we have, we, I, I'm not, I, I think I, I, well, I know, I agree with my, with my cousin that, <laughs> that some of us love our kids way more than we were loved. <laughs> So there it goes. I said it out loud. <laughs> and I, I, I do want to get back to the father, son, and maleness of it. You know, tell us a little bit more about that because obviously that is your experience, and so you can you can write much more richly from your own experience. But has has it been difficult to to be, you know, a white male writer writing about men? Oh, I mean, I don't think it's difficult. Um, I think I, I, you know, I don't think I could ever claim that 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 my white maleness makes things more difficult for me. That probably wouldn't be a good thing to say. Um, no, but I mean, I think that I, I am aware that um, you know there are, there are many avenues for me that are not available to other people. Um, but at the, at the same time, I think I think oh, I made the joke earlier about you know just what the world needs is another book like mine. Um, and you know, I'm aware that that uh, I, I guess I hope that I'm presenting these issues as I see them in a way that is, you know, at least somewhat unique, somewhat different, that I'm, that I'm adding a wrinkle to this that's, that's, that's fresh or new in some way, because, because what I'm writing about is, is not new. Um, so, you know, I just, I just hope that I'm approaching it in, in a way that, that is, shed some new light on it or a different perspective. Um, but uh, but no, I, I don't really think too much about that while I'm writing. Like I said before, I, I if I did, I probably wouldn't get a whole lot of writing done. Um, it can be that can be, you know, stifling to think too much yeah. about that. I just try to write the the stories that that I want to read, that I'm interested in, and explore, you know, the characters that that I feel like I know, um, or you know, have some have some insight into what that might be like. I grew up, um, you know, in a, a working class family, so that's kind of a world I know. Uh, I mean, I was never, I was never, you know, I, I had, I was never without, I didn't have, I didn't, I had a very, a great childhood. And I don't want to, you know, paint a different kind of picture than that, but, but it's just sort of a, a, the kind of people I know and recognize. So those are the ones I try to explore. Maybe, maybe, you know, without, without sounding too, too cheesy, you know, give voice to those people. Um, yeah, and, and I want to speak to it from sort of the audience perspective. Okay, so here I am, this person who's a social worker, whose main work all of my adult life has been with suicide prevention and suicide bereavement. And one of the things that I know is that people need to hear other people's stories. That's part of how we do get through things that are really hard. It's part of how we make decisions because it, we, we do have to have some expectations about, well, what would happen if I make this choice or that choice? 
but I've seen I've seen the pressure on men. I've seen the pressure on men, for example, who've had children of whatever age who've died of suicide, and men being able to tell their stories of how responsible they felt for taking care of their family and how much they sometimes even sacrifice their own emotions to be there and do the things that they need to do to take care of their family and how devastating it is when they weren't able to take care of their family in this sense, not able to keep that child alive, you know, and that it is a different experience because of all of the incorporated ideas about what men are supposed to be, how powerful they're supposed to be, how stoic they're supposed to be, you know, how they're supposed to take care of things financially and in some other ways. And and so to me, I really value having stories that represent all different kinds of people. But in particular, to me, there's this thing about men and the overall socialization that's been, from my perspective, historic, that, you know, men suck it up. As, as my friend Jerry would say, there were three emotions allowed in his family for men. You could be angry, angrier, or angry s. That was it, you know? And so, so to, to give other examples that, that acknowledge that's not what men are. That's not who men are. That's not healthy, you know? And again, stories are a way that comes to people. Yeah, I, I think that um, I think you're right. I, I it's you know I, I think I'm somebody you know going through grad school and being exposed to a lot of things. I feel like I'm I'm particularly cognizant of you know the the, the way society works upon us, both men and women. I mean, women have their own you know set of circumstances, and in some ways far worse than men. Um, but it, it's weird to be simultaneously aware of that and aware and aware that that it's all. It's it's all a construction, right? That that you know, men are not anything, you know, except human beings. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's you know, there's no such thing as something being manly or something like that, except for what we have as a society said is manly. So I'm aware of those pressures, yet I still fall prey to them, which is right. a really and I and I still you know I'm aware of it raising a son, and I'm aware of trying to you know to you know slow the work that society will have on him being a boy but it, you know i still i still find myself i still find you know he likes playing with cars and trucks it's like well how did that happen i mean it happened because he <laughs> likes it it happened because yeah. he likes it but at the same time yeah. there's this there's a sense of like well did i you know did i push that right because that's what right. boys do yeah. or something you know so i think that that's that's things those are things that i'm aware of that you know i think men maybe we wrestle with it more now because it's a conversation that we can have about like the pressures of, you know, what it means to be a man. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I, it's, it's a, it's a, a really fascinating, I mean, gender, gender in general is a fascinating thing, but as a man that, you know, I, I know more about that aspect of that. I do obviously from a woman's perspective, but I'm fascinated by it either way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that again, that we have to talk about it. And one of the ways we so-called talk about it is by reading you know, by watching, by by hearing other people's stories, however however we get those, um, it's really important. It, yeah, that's why I'm, I'm always really frustrated when I hear about you know um, it, do, it doesn't happen often, but you know when schools are pressured to to take books out of libraries and ban books because of because maybe you know a YA novel deals with suicide, for example, or it deals with something that's you know, and there's always this fear that our kids aren't ready for it. It's like, well, it could help kids in any any number of ways you know whether it be whether it be through you know racial issues or cultural issues or issues of sexuality um issues of suicide those are all things that you know it's i you know obviously i would never i wouldn't advocate for giving children books that they're not ready for but mm-hmm. there's a sense that we're we're you know books they can help kids yeah. you know present them yeah. with something like you said they they can learn through hearing another story yeah. um you know, the so, kid who grows up with really, you know, the negative images about something that they identify with gets to go to the, the public library, the school library online and read stories about people who are like them and who are saying, you know, be proud of who you are. My life is great. You know, that, that you're not yeah. limited in the ways that some other 
might give you that message. And, I, and I, when you mentioned banned books, I have to give a shout out to our Lawrence, Kansas Public Library, because every year they do a, an art uh, contest that ends up creating the banned book trading cards of the year. <laughs> It's just such a cool thing because artists from from you know all over the area sub, uh, create designs and the the original works get displayed as well as the library produces this you know the 2016 set of banned book trading cards. <laughs> I love that. No, that's awesome. I, and I mean, like I said, I, I think that you know there, there's there's you know almost immeasurable value in allowing you know having having books available to help people you know um you know to 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 feel a kindred spirit with a character you know if a kid's going through something to not feel alone um i think that's really important i mean you know again without being you know too kind of um you know, hippy dippy about it. I mean, I think books can really do can can do that kind of work. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And and in ways that maybe other other things can't. You know, because like when you read a book, I was just thinking about this. When you read a book, it's private. Uh-huh. You know, when you watch a TV show, I mean, it's private, but it's different. You know, there's there's something yeah. intimate about reading a book that you can kind of do on your own yeah. and um, when you're ready. I don't know. There's something about that, perhaps. Yeah. And there's the thing about you know, and who are you exposed to in real life versus who you're exposed to you know, by something that you read. I, I, I think about a, a dear friend of mine who, who died young, unfortunately, um, with complications from AIDS, but he grew up in Ottawa, Kansas, which is a pretty small Midwestern town. Lawrence um, is a university town, so it's a little different. Um, Ottawa is about, whatever, 45 minutes from here, half yep. an hour from here. And Craig grew up believing that he was the only gay person in Ottawa, Kansas, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, sure. Well, yeah. You know, and that's, that was because of in his experience, nobody, um, nobody that he knew from his hometown was openly gay. And so therefore he was the only one. And so it was, you know, reading and then later meeting people, you know, that, that he realized he wasn't alone in the way that he had feared. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know? And reading is a powerful part of that. I would love to invite you to to share a little bit from some of your additional writing, um, whether it's from this new collection, The Spoils, or something else, but just to give people a little bit more taste of your writing. Sure. I can get, I can read, um, I'll read the beginning of a story called uh, Pinchbeck. Um, And this one, People, are, I mean, people recognize at least the the regional. Uh, the, fir- the first story didn't really didn't take place somewhere. All the, I mean, it takes place somewhere specific. This one's a little bit more uh, prominent. So, uh, I'll read the first uh, couple paragraphs of the story for you. <clears throat> it's called Pinchbeck. Wild Bill is getting married tomorrow, so in this afternoon's show, everyone hits their marks, trying to prove they can fill Wild Bill's boots. Fourth of July is easily the biggest weekend of the season for Old Town Abilene's gunfight on Main Street show. We'd heard that Bill, the guy's name who plays Wild Bill, is actually Bill. I'm not making this up. Was going to handpick one of us to fill in. Wild Bill is the only set part in the show. The rest of us rotate between the other roles. Bill's a history history professor at Wesleyan over in Salina, and he's been playing Wild Bill for years. It's not some summertime hobby for him. He takes it seriously, and all of us know this. As cowboy... As cowboy number three, I look like an extra right out of an episode of Gunsmoke with dusty dungarees and boots, a denim western-style shirt, and red bandana. I'm leaning against the split pine porch rail of the dry goods store, which doubles as the old town gift shop before and after the show. Across the wide dirt lane, cowboy number five hitches an old deaf horse to the rail in front of the false post office. Villains number one and two hang around the horse stable, and several pairs of women in long, rough-cut dresses and off-white bonnets crisscross the lane. The set is modeled after the real 1870s Main Street in Abilene. Two of the structures are even authentic. Low-slung buildings with second-story false fronts, wooden porches, hitching posts, and even water troughs, like the stylized versions we recognize from TV shows and movies. Unlike in the theater, where the stage lights keep us from seeing the audience, here, under the never-ending Kansas sky, they're right in front of us, corralled by a split-rail fence in front of the Bull's Head Saloon in the middle of Main Street. When I'm playing one of the lesser roles, like Cowboy Number 3, I like to watch them watch the show. 
the most faithful are probably old folks, those busting on day trips from retirement homes in Topeka, Manhattan, and Salina, and those of the over-the-road America bus tours that stop to see the Eisenhower Library, which is conveniently just across the street. I'd venture to guess that most of the rest are either on their way to Kansas City or Denver, and we're just kind of pit stop, a place to get lunch and stretch, the, stretch their legs, and well, look at that, an Old West show, and it starts in 20 minutes. Cool. That is Midwest. Yes, it is. <laughs> <clears throat> and that's one of the stories from the spoils? Yes, that is. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's... Uh, that story, that the story's a few years old, but um, had a lot of fun trying to write that one. Write a an old west, kind of a a bad old west reenactment show. Kind of, <laughs> was kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, the the story is um, a little a little like lighthearted as you might as you might tell at the opening there, but mm -hmm. um, it it's you know it it like most of my stories, it tends to take a serious turn. <laughs> so. And I want to invite you to tell a little bit more about like what writing is for you like at some point you you picked up pen and started writing in whatever genres and and then you made this really you know this this obviously has was a calling for you you pursued it with degrees in the work that you're doing um in many ways what what's that about for you it's a great question um I don't know. I, th I think I was always um, writing. Always came fairly easy to me, like in school. Um, I remember a couple times in high school, uh, and, and I, I played baseball all, all growing up and through high school, and I played in college too. So when I first went to college, I was I was a baseball player, you know. And oh yeah, if I get an education along the way, that's great. But I was mm -hmm. I was not. I mean, I was a good student, but I wasn't I wasn't a I wasn't there to be a student. I had I was sort of backwards thinking about that, but. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in high school, I remember a few times teachers, you know, kind of fawning over something I'd written and just being, oh, yeah, okay, cool. You know, like, you know, being being happy they liked it, but but not really, um, not really caring because it wasn't what I was most interested in. Um, and then as I got to college, I, I took a, um, uh, got into being an English major and sort of caught that bug. And um, when I was getting my master's degree, I was, it's in literature, but I was always, I found myself more and more fascinated by the writers and their writing and what they were doing and their stories and who they were than I was in, you know, the great books or something like that. And, um, um, and I kind of, you know, had kind of dabbled in a little bit of writing and sort of afraid to admit to myself or commit to, to trying to be a writer. And, um, I talked to a couple of the writing, uh, fiction writing faculty there, and and uh, you know put together some put together some some writing in a portfolio, and um, you know sent it off MFA applications, and I got in, and from then on it's been it's been um, you know serious. Um, mm -hmm. So co coming into the MFA program, I, w I was behind most people, mainly because a lot of a lot of them had gotten undergraduate degrees in creative writing or something like that. So I was older than a lot of my cohorts, but, but, uh, you know, a few years older, but less experienced in actual creative writing and fiction writing. So, um, it was really formative for me. Um, but yeah, as far as what writing is to me, I don't know. That, that's a really great question. I, I don't, it's not, I don't want to say it's therapeutic because I, I, it just, it isn't for me except that, or I don't write, I don't write to, you know, uh, express emotions or I don't, I don't write solely to do that, but I will say though that when I'm writing consistently, I do feel better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't, I don't sit down to say like, Oh, I need to, you know, explore my thoughts and feelings and emotions on the page, even though those probably do come out. Um, but I do feel better when I'm writing. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I haven't, I've never really thought about why I do it, except that I think it's something I'm, I've gotten, you know, good enough at and um you know it's something i want to keep doing uh, i want to keep writing and and teach writing i love to teach writing i think that's that's um really satisfying um so so yeah i don't know and, and it, it puts it, it puts me it does put i think writing teachers in kind of an interesting position when you're when you're at the point when you can you know advise or counsel students on you know writing as a future mm -hmm. um because you know, it's 
it's a val- I think it's valuable whether people publish or not. I think it's an, it's a valuable endeavor, just like most anything we do. If yeah. you're using if you're using your mind and you're thinking and you're trying to express yourself, then it's worthwhile. Yeah. But there is this sense that some students maybe don't recognize the you know how how big of a commitment it is and how you likely won't see any financial rewards, yeah. that, or at least financial rewards won't won't match what you've had to put into it and sacrifice in order to do it. So. Yeah. You know, I try to be honest with with people. Um, and one of the things I wonder in terms of teaching and students uh, is, okay, so with so much casual communication, you know, all the social media text, the way that people write in those ways, do people who tend to be students in writing classes already have an idea about how to write that's helpful? Or is it a big struggle to realize that writing is a serious thing? That writing as a what is serious. I mean, it's serious oh. communication that, you know, that, uh, and I'm thinking I kind of in part because I am a judge for a writing contest um, that's related to um, experiences with suicide thoughts and attempts. And it's a national writing contest. And the, the stories, if I want to call them that are always powerful. And, and I, admire people for being willing to submit them, but the writing quality is not necessarily very good. Yeah, that's, that's the challenge. I think that there's this misconception uh, and it, it may not, it may not be as much in fiction as it is in like poetry or, or essay, especially poetry, that it's just, a, it's just about getting your emotions down and that that's enough. Um, and that is enough if the writing is for you. Mm-hmm. And if that helps you, you know, journaling or writing a diary, doing some kind of daily writing, then by all means do that. But that doesn't make it art. Right. That art is not just this overflow of emotions. You know, uh, we, we've been sort of – I have this romantic notion about what writing – what who writers are and how they produce. And, and uh, you know, I, I try to be very honest with students about, you know, how, at least from my, from my own experience, you know um, – there's nothing romantic about it. It's it's putting in, <laughs> putting in the work. You know, I don't I don't just sit and wait for a bolt of lightning from the muse to you know it doesn't work like that. I mean, it's yeah. it's work, yeah. and that it's it's craft and it's you know hopefully it aspires to be art. Um, you know, mm-hmm. just gushing your emotions on the page that's an absolutely valuable thing people can do, but that's maybe that's first, and then. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to understand not not just like how to write sentences you know like on the very sort of nuts and bolts writing stuff but then how to craft a piece of fiction or an essay or a poem um, mm-hmm. and I think that's the thing that students because we have this uh, I remember uh, during my undergrad uh, in some English class I mentioned you know at, at, the the movie Dead Poet Society. Mm-hmm. I think I don't know if it's still popular among like young writers, but there's a scene in that movie where um, the Robin Williams character has the Ethan Hawke character like look at a picture of Whitman, and he like covers his eyes and just tells him to like say what comes to his mind. He has this, you know, this sp- quote unquote spontaneous overflow of emotion or whatever. And I remember a teacher one time saying like that actually, that's not how it is. And that's actually hurt that, you know, that's, that's doing more damage than it is because it's this sense that that's poetry. Uh-huh. And, you know, Whitman's poetry particularly might feel that way, but you know, he, he, he was revising leaves of grass on his deathbed. I mean, you know, there was like 14 editions of that book. So mm-hmm. it was not just some, some overflow of emotion that he got on the page. And that, you know, I think that that's, if that's our conception of, if that's young people's conception of writers, then they will be disappointed in, in, how much work it takes. Mm-hmm. All right, then. So writing is work, in case anybody <laughs> had other illusions about this. Give them sorry up to, now. <laughs> sorry to squash everybody's, everybody's dreams. <laughs> and the, I think the one... that's important that it's not just this easy thing that just comes quickly. <laughs> the one thing I will say about that, though, is that I don't think I am, and this is this is not false modesty, I don't, I don't think I'm a particularly or especially talented as a writer. I think, I mean, obviously, obviously I have some talent and, and I have some, some affinity for it, but it's really about the work. And mm-hmm. I think I went to school with a lot of people who were probably better writers than, than I am. In fact, I know some of them were for, for a fact, but they, they quit. Mm-hmm. They stopped. They didn't want, they didn't want to, they didn't want to continue for whatever reason. It might've been, mm-hmm. who knows? It's not for me to judge their reasons, but, but I think that I hope that 
I could be an example of for for, for young writers that you know it, what I've done is not unattainable mm-hmm. if you know you put in the work. Right. Um, so you know I'll squash their dreams, and then I'll say, but you know it's, <laughs> it's, it's reachable. <laughs> Just yeah. look at me; I did it. Yeah, and and that's real life. You know that that's that's the way you know with anything we do we get better with more practice and more influences, you know, and that's, that, that is work. And we are at the end of the hour. Man, which is already. <laughs> so I'm going to give a quick rundown of, there is this person, Casey Pitcher, P-Y-C-I-O-R, who has a new book of stories, The Spoils. And you will be reading in this kind of Midwest area around me on Thursday, April 6th in Wichita at Watermark Books, on Friday, April 7th here in Lawrence at the Raven Bookstore, and on Thursday, April 13th in St. Louis at Subterranean Books. So people have the opportunity to see you in person, hear you reading from these stories, and to buy the book and get it signed, or to buy the book someplace else. That's good, too. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no. What, what you said earlier about hearing reader, hearing writers read their own work when you said in the uh-huh. opening, that, that, that is a really neat experience. When, yeah. Especially, especially if you've read something of them, then you hear them read it. It is... Yeah. It, it really does help. So I'd be, be happy to see people at all those readings. I'll, I'll have some more probably coming up uh, in like late May. But if people want to check out my website, they can, they can do that. I, I keep a, an events page there and people can keep track of it that way. Wonderful. Casey, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. It was a great time. Thanks. And thanks to our listeners. And so long. <laughs>